Today, I'd like to welcome Kevin Udicello with Realization Capital Partners to the podcast. Uh, Kevin is a partner uh, with the firm and uh, a fellow Trojan as well. So, Kevin, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Steve. Thanks for uh, for having me. Uh, <laughs> well, looking forward to talking. Yeah, for sure. So, I'm actually really excited about this interview because, as you may know, I don't know how much background uh, research you did on our business, uh, but we offer a fintech platform that is made available to entrepreneurs and, and companies that are looking to raise capital to scale. Um, and the sweet spot for our companies, as far as the, the amount of capital they're trying to raise, uh, I think fits right in with, uh, you know, with the sweet spot for your firm, as far as the investments that you guys like to make. So, uh, it'll be, I think, an interesting conversation, um, and I think a lot of that's, the, uh, yeah, a lot, I think a lot always of, good overlap. Yeah, yeah, and I think a lot of the users on our platform will hopefully gain some insight, you know, hearing from an investor directly. So, tell me, tell me a little bit about your background and how you got into uh, this partnership position with a private equity firm. Yeah, so I started out um, as an entrepreneur, actually coming out of uh, undergrad at at USC, uh, I started a company with a couple of others that I had met uh, during summer jobs and internships who uh, came out of the GSA, General Services Administration. And uh, they were, um, we, we sort of got together and built a company to go acquire private commercial uh, real estate, so office and um, with with government tenants. So the thesis basically was, you know, these Government tenants are mission-driven. The checks come straight out of the treasury. They're high credit quality. And we were able to make a modification to the lease agreements that um, the GSA didn't care about and the rating agencies did uh, and really liked it. So we got the um, the credit quality of the leases rated kind of close to government debt uh, so they would be able to be financed at a pretty thin spread over treasuries. And we ended up um, kind of starting a um, – I guess a vertical in in, uh, in real estate uh, for government leased office that is now pretty big, um, and we started that company and didn't sleep for a few years and built it and uh, filed to take it public and uh, and then sold it while we were pricing to uh, HRPT, which is a large healthcare REIT uh, that bought it, um, and then they later later spun it off under the ticker GOV. Um, about the same portfolio we we had originally built. So I I loved the uh, capital market side of it. Um, I've always been into technology though personally. So uh, I left there and I helped them raise more money for a second fund. Um, and those guys have gone on to raise uh, three or four funds. Um, and I sat on the board of one of them. But um, but I went into uh, tech and got into banking. Uh, this is around the time of the of the first. Um, technology bubble back in kind of 99 sure. and I, I I'd sort of written a bunch of software for the that I'd coded together while we were building the real estate firm and uh, if I was smarter I would have commercialized that as uh, an enterprise content management system but uh, but I didn't so I left and I joined Arthur Anderson at the time uh, they were hiring in to form a uh, an investment banking practice uh, they called the corporate finance practice and we were doing uh, mostly m a for uh, venture back sort of growth stage tech companies. And 
I was there um, really through the sort of collapse of the of the bubble. Well, actually, that's not true. I, I was there in '99, and then I joined Alliant Partners, which was uh, an M&A shop uh, in Silicon Valley, um, and uh, they were a competitor of Broadview back uh, during that sort of first bubble. I was there when that bubble sort of collapsed in 2000, um, and then I was there for another six or seven years when it got acquired by uh, Silicon Valley Bank, uh, and we were basically the investment banking division of Silicon Valley Bank um, at Alliant Partners, and uh, I was there until I left with a bunch of others that were with Alliant and uh, joined PageMill Partners, and PageMill was another M&A-focused tech investment banking practice um, that I joined, and we got acquired in 2011 by Duff and Phelps, and we were the technology investment banking business for Duff and Phelps, still branded as PageMill, um, and I was there through 2019. And, you know, for several years, I ran the practice. Uh, and then for several years, we um, split the practice up among four partners and, and, and it kind of split up the administration duties. I left in March of 2019 and started the fund. Um, and the fund was interesting because it was, it's really we left to form a fund that was exploiting some of the inefficiencies we saw in the market um, during my experience and my partner's experience. My partner, I actually went to high school with him and, uh, okay. and he, um, is a 10 time CEO and, uh, has exited 10 times and I've, wow. I actually advised him. Yeah. He's, he's a, he's a tremendous guy. Um, really experienced, very driven. And uh, his name's Jason Donahue and he and I, uh, worked together to sell two of his companies. I sold one of his companies to Oracle and another one to IBM. And, um, and we kind of got together and talked about some inefficiencies that we both thought existed that we wanted to try to take advantage of. So we left and, and started a fund and, um, and Jason had gotten it going. I, I joined him a few months after he had started, but we uh, just actually closed fundraising uh, in late January and we'll announce it pretty soon in the, in the coming weeks. But we, we raised 105 million uh, to go chase these opportunities that we were, that we were seeing. Interesting. So I didn't realize the fund was that new. So I, I noticed on your website, you already have some portfolio companies. Are those companies that you and your partner personally invested in prior to closing on this fund? Or tell, tell me about how those investments were made. Yeah. And, and to be fair, I, you know, um, despite the kind of long history in M&A and, you know, I, I closed around 50 50 transactions there. Um, we, I also did some investing uh, at a partner funds while I was Alliant. Um, and Jason has actually been a limited partner in a few private equity funds. Um, so, and, and, and did some personal investing in various companies and so on. So we had some personal investing um, history, but this is the first sort of institutional fund. Um, in terms of the portfolio companies, we uh, took, um, well, we, we, uh, we bought two minority stakes and uh, participated in a syndicate of a buyout uh, in December. And that was all sort of from the March to December uh, period while we were raising capital. Okay. Okay. Um, we kind of had, we, we, we had half the fund raised um, almost right away and uh, closed out the other half in January. 
That's interesting because, you know, to me, it seems like, I mean, you're right up there in Menlo Park in, in the thick of things when it comes to, you know, tech investment. Um, I'm down in Southern California, so maybe I don't have my thumb on the pulse as much as you do, as you do but um, it seems like valuations right now would be pretty high and it might be a tough time to raise capital, but maybe I'm looking at it the wrong way. Tell me, I mean, there's obviously a lot of capital out there, but to tell me about that process in putting your fund together. You know, was it, was it difficult? Um, you know, what was your angle when you approached investors? How did you convince them that, you know, they should allocate to you as opposed to some of the other players out there? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Cause I will tell you first time funds are very difficult to raise and, and understandably so from, you know, the institutions that, that, um, that invest in funds. Um, the reason that we were um, able to do it and do it relatively quickly is because our thesis resonated as a little bit unique and directly relevant to, to our experience. So the, the fund thesis just real briefly is um, we're, we're, we have a broad charter, so we can do kind of all kinds of investing, but our primary goal is to go after secondary positions. So uh, existing institutional minority equity positions in growth stage tech businesses. So we would buy directly from a VC, uh, maybe in a situation where, you know, the VC had 15 companies in a portfolio and they've exited or shut down kind of 12 of them. And there's a few others that, uh, you know, one might be trouble. The other two might be good, healthy software businesses. Um, but it's not the right time to sell those companies, but they're healthy companies and meanwhile, that fund is seven or eight years old and the LPs want the capital back. So there's a, a need for that um, VC to sell the position. Um, and to be honest, there's some inefficiencies in the venture model where that VC is likely moved on to another fund. Um, you know, you may have more um, hits in the new fund. You may have more carry and maybe a bigger fund. So its focus is now shifted away from that business. Um, and so part of our thesis is to buy those kind of stakes. And it doesn't have to be that those characteristics, we, we would look at anything and we're happy to sort of pay for growth if the company is doing really well. Mm -hmm. um, but the, and then the, we, have, we have a broad charter. So often we'll also lead rounds, um, we'll do secondary and lead around. Um, the deal we did in December was um, as part of a a syndicate with another private equity fund to do a buyout of a large family business in the pharmaceutical automation space. So we have a pretty broad charter, but that's the first half of the thesis. And the second half of the thesis, which I think also resonated, resonated with our limited partners is um, Jason and I um, have kind of a track record of exits, both as executives and as um, you know, for me in terms of banking and advisory. So, uh, the second half of the thesis is we want to get really hands-on uh, with management teams and really be a resource to them, almost like an outsource strategy group. And the thinking is, you know, we looked at all the exits we've been a part of, and we looked at all the uh, valuations that were sort of out of market in a favorable way. And we thought, you know, what were the characteristics of those companies that drove that? And how do we, how do we create those characteristics in the portfolio companies, you know, one to four years after we invest? And so what we're doing is we're using relationships and just kind of cadence and, and work to um, drive relationships with a small targeted group of 
of buyers for any individual company. So it's usually there's five to eight buyers for any tech business. And what we do is look for commercial agreements, uh, you know, joint selling agreements, integrations, executive relationships, or competitive wins, anything that will get that buyer um, closer to the value proposition of the company we invested in and why it's defensible and why it will scale, you know, from a commercial perspective, because that way either they'll approach you or by the time it's time to run a process to sell a business, suddenly you have a lot more leverage because when the, when the corporate development or M&A executive at the buyer uh, goes to his product teams and says, Hey, do you know this company? It's not a missionary conversation, right? They, the, the product manager already knows the business. They're familiar with it. They, they love it. Um, so you, you enter that, that exit process with much more leverage. And frankly, even if the company decides to go public, it's, it's, it's helpful to have that kind of, uh, you know, sort of familiarity and alternative um, in terms of uh, a potential M&A exit. So that was the thesis of the fund. And it's, it was unique enough that, um, that uh, the LPs got it, got excited about it. So, so if I'm to summarize that on, there's sort of two prongs to this thesis that I see. One is that, you know, you're willing to make secondary investments. um, And, you know, I read a little about this on your website as well. Uh, you know, you're willing to make those investments under creative structures at times. And the second prong would be that not only are you providing capital, but you're providing expertise and relationships. And I know that's overly broad, but you know, that's, and you have the experience to back it up. Um, so is that kind of a fair, fair summary? Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. And, and it wouldn't work without, you know, sort of our background um, and, kind of bringing to bear, you know, all the stuff we've seen, the relationships and everything to, to help management teams. We really want to create value for our fellow investors, for the teams. We love working with entrepreneurs. Uh, we love technology businesses. Uh, we're both really at our core sort of huge software nerds. Um, <laughs> you know, we're both curious people. So we, we really love working with uh, management teams. Yeah, I mean, I, I talk to a lot of investors, you know, I come across a lot of different funds and, you know, it's very common to see a fund say, you know, our our capital is of secondary importance, our expertise is really what you're getting with us. But the reality is most people who say that don't have, well, I shouldn't say most, but a lot of people who say that don't have the true expertise or track record to to support that. Um, and, and it seems like you guys do, which is, uh, probably why the institutions bought in. Um, so, so tell me, tell me a little bit about kind of the ways in which you can get creative when it comes to taking out an existing investor or kind of maybe some of the outside the box structures that other funds might not be willing to participate in. Yeah, the the nice thing about having a broad charter and kind of LPs that are excited about it um, is we can get creative and it and it is sometimes necessary to bridge gaps, right? Um, I'll just give you, you know, a couple of examples. Um, We looked at one company and it was a large kind of well-known VC that um, had really been in a long time. It was from an old fund that was uh, that was not in carry, even though most of these most of this firm's funds are in carry. 
when I say not in carry, I mean it, it wasn't returning enough uh, to to drive sufficient carry for the uh, for the venture uh, general partners. So uh, you know, so they're not particularly motivated to um, continue to um, you know support the company. Their their time and attention starts to get focused on, on other things. Mm-hmm. So they had actually written the investment down. They um, but the company was actually the market kind of came around to the company's technology, so it was pivoting a bit, and it was it was on the other side of a pivot, and it was growing and and interesting. Um, and we the, the company also needed capital, so you know this existing fund had a pro rata that they didn't want to sell, and there was sufficient risk that the round um, you know could have some structure and protection and and upside. So. We came in with one of the other existing investors and partnered to lead a new round um, and set some terms. And, you know, that the existing VC that I was talking about that had a position, um, you know, to us, their position was valuable because we would buy their position and do their pro rata. To, their, to them, since they didn't want to invest further, you know, their position wasn't very valuable. Um, so it, it it made sense for everybody to put that kind of structure in place. Now we didn't end up closing that deal because of because of some other issues that we ran into in diligence. But I'll, I'll give you one other example. And there's there's kind of a million of these in terms of ways to be creative. But one of the things we do, and we're not we're not unique in this, is you know we'll buy from a venture capital firm that um, that is nervous that they're you know they're giving away an equity stake that could turn into something big and particularly if we're buying from a venture capital firm that we've worked with before you know that knows we're going to go add value and has done transactions with us in our history yeah um maybe they'll either you know in a simple basis they'll roll part of their holding and they'll sell us the other part um if it's more complex they'll sell us everything but we'll we'll work with splits so you know that we'll set a certain valuation where we'll acquire the shares and then we'll have kind of a almost a carry structure back to them so that if the company does better than a certain threshold, we'll um, split the upside with them. If they do better than another threshold, you know, the sharing will get more favorable for them. So it's just a way of aligning um, risk appetite, right? Like we're more concerned about losing capital than we are about the lottery ticket. Yeah. So we're happy to give away some of the lottery tickets. So they feel comfortable. They're not leaving something big on the table. And, um, you know, in order to kind of, uh, get get downside protection for us. Yeah, and when you say downside protection, it means buying in at a lower cost basis. Yeah, yeah. Usually, it, it can be. You know, if you're leading around, it can be in terms of liquidity preferences or other structure. But in this case, that, that example I was just giving, yeah, the downside protection is starting at a lower cost basis and then kind of giving away some of the upside to uh, mm-hmm. to share some of the the returns. Yeah, it's an interesting. I mean, I don't know if there's you know, a, a glut of funds that are doing this out there and I'm just not aware of it, but um, it's interesting to kind of be in your position and kind of taking advantage of, you know, companies that have maybe already reached certain milestones, but investors who for one reason or another in those companies don't have an appetite to continue. And, um, you know, it kind of gives you uh, an ability to take some risk off the table in another way and that, you know, you've been able to see if that company has <clears throat> been able to execute, you know, you weren't the first one in or, you know, so early on. So um, it's interesting. 
Yeah, and it, and it's a you know, and we're after companies that are sort of fifteen to twenty million in revenue and up, mm-hmm. um, uh, like fifteen million of ARR, maybe and twenty million of uh, revenue. All tech businesses, hopefully, they're close to profitability, but they don't have to be profitable. Mm-hmm. Um, that's uh, you know, that, that's nice. We're and we're after writing checks of kind of five to fifteen million, and we can go up as high as eighty or a hundred with co-invest from some of our limited partners. Okay. Uh, who are quite large and, and motivated to co-invest. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, you know, but to your point, um, there's just a lot of different, almost non-company um, risk and other sort of outside issues that go into these investment decisions of whether they continue to support the company or grow. And, you know, Jason and I have looked at just tons and tons of these companies um, and been involved with a bunch of companies. And so we can see patterns in the, in the, technologies and verticals we know well um, and dig in and maybe we can understand risk better and in some of them we're not any smarter than the 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 other investors we're buying from but sometimes we have a different risk appetite and sometimes we have a different set of experience to to apply to that risk so um, that's when the creativity uh, helps absolutely i mean i think what's so cool about your model is that you know you frankly you could be dealing with uh, an investor that's at the top of their game uh but for one reason or another it's like you said started another fund or you know they need liquidity for some reason for another investment and you're just kind of taking advantage of external factors that may have nothing to do with the the investment itself um so yeah that's kind of a unique arbitrage there if that's even the right word but there's like a a way that you're kind of perhaps just just taking advantage of external events like i like i said so um yeah so tell me a little bit about your investor base you know you you mentioned that you've got commitments i think for 100 million or you've raised 100 million so far um you know is that are those investors institutions are they high net worth individuals is it a mix you know, who, who have you gone to as investors? Yeah, so it's a it's 105 million of uh, committed capital. Um, so the way that works in, in venture funds is it's a commitment to uh, to fund. So it's our it's the fund's discretion to to draw and invest. Um, so the capital is committed, but we of course don't draw it until we actually invest it, which is the way all of them all the funds work. Yeah. Um, our investor base is uh, is pretty. Varied. It's not a lot of institutions. It's a lot of multifamily offices. So um, a, a lot of there's a few high net worth individuals, I guess a handful, and then there's a lot of multifamily offices. So which is which I think is fairly typical of a of a fund of our size. Um, for large institutions, it's tough for them. We have a couple of them, but it's tough for them to to invest in a in a in a first time fund. Uh, and, and in, in, a, in a fund that's, uh, that's as small as ours. Right. So that's, um, that's kind of the makeup of the base. So are you, I'm assuming, you know, a family office, a family office is really just, you know, it, it, maybe I'm oversimplifying, but it's like an accredited investor on steroids. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it, it's, you know. uh, if you, if you think the, the thing that was kind of flattering about our, that we're, we're really excited about our LPs. We have a bunch of great, smart LPs. And the, one of the things we were excited about, actually, some of the multifamily offices are uh, are from um, existing kind of well-known uh, general partners at, at at big venture funds. 
Nice. So there's, um, yeah, and, and, and the others are, you know, we have a Nobel laureate uh, in economics. We have, um, we, have a, we have a handful of really interesting LPs and, and, you know, to the extent they want to be active and talk with us, we're always excited to, um, to, uh, to talk with them and, and, you know, help us get smart, help them get smart on what yeah. we're doing. And, so did those, did those yeah. relationships, the, the, the people who invested or the family offices that invested, did the relationships to those groups come from your career history or experience or did they come from, you know, a, a, a fundraising blitz that you did just before you, you started the fund? Um, no, it was all from career history. So, you know, I already bragged about my partner, but, uh, he's a brilliant guy and, and super well connected and, and very well liked. Um, and, you know, a, a lot of the relationships were his and, uh, you know, a fair amount were mine, but the, the, um, the, it all came from people we knew. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but most, I guess most interestingly, it was people that we knew that had worked with us who got excited and then told friends of theirs. So a lot of the capital came from um, kind of referrals of people that were really excited about the investment opportunity and then told colleagues of theirs or others they had invested with before in different funds. And that's kind of what drove the, the, the fundraise. I don't know if you can release this information, but how many total investors do you have? Um, we have close to 100, actually. Okay. Okay. So that's and, a, yeah, so it's, a lot of diversity. Yeah. Yeah. And, and part of that's driven by a few of the multifamily offices. They, they manage money for, you know, uh, multifamilies, like it says, and they, they prefer a structure where, um, you know, they help manage it, but the invest directly. So that ends up taking kind of more slots. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the base. Do you, do you have, kind of a, a pro forma as where you as for where you want your fund to be in five years and, and as far as the amount of capital deployed and number of deals you're doing per year yeah our, 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 our ideally um we want you know kind of 12 to 15 companies in the fund uh maybe less and it's um, and part of the reason is because Jason and I want to be able to be very active with the management teams and really be working with them. So we don't want to get uh, too thin um, in terms of our uh, time and uh, ability to help. Um, so that's kind of the goal. And, and, you know, it's it's a little sort of over that concept because sometimes we end up taking a position initially that's smaller than we would like. And, you know, we hope to kind of buy more as the company does more rounds or, or maybe buy out other investors as we go um, to get the stake bigger. Uh, And of course, you know, our time is going to be focused on kind of the larger, the larger stakes. So that's kind of the goal. And, um, and we're, we're super excited about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's tremendous to come out of the, come out of the gate with a hundred different investors, you know, over a hundred million dollars committed, um, you know, some great kind of seed companies already in your portfolio. So um, I think uh, sounds like you guys are about to, to really pick up some momentum. Um, tell, tell our audience about the types of companies 
you like to invest in kind of a little bit more specifically maybe than what we've discussed so far, if you could. Yeah, sure. Um, so I think I mentioned, you know, kind of 15 to 20 million or more in revenue. Um, and that can go up, you know, really right. large. Um, we like uh, profitability. Uh, you know, we, we are, um, I know this is kind of a, an alien word in some aspects of tech, but we are a value sort of based fundamental kind of investor. Now we can, you know, we understand technology, so we understand, um, you know, growth opportunities and where there's, um, you know, to your podcast topic, a lot of times disruption in the market um, where there's innovative and defensible technology. So uh, we understand that upside, but we, we still view that upside should produce uh, fundamentally sound businesses that are that are profitable, and so we we invest kind of around that thesis. Um, in terms of uh, verticals, we we only do technology businesses. Um, Jason and I, mo most of our background is in enterprise software and infrastructure software. So think about sort of cloud and systems management and vertical applications, SaaS stuff. Um, so we'll probably be most competitive in those environments because that's the risk we understand the best. Yeah, but we would look at uh, almost anything in tech, and in fact, the the pharmaceutical automation business we invested in, uh, we invested specifically, uh, well, partly because of the uh, the opportunity to kind of build their software out uh, to become an industry leader. So um, we'll look at other, you know, sort of non-software tech businesses as well, but that software is probably where we're strongest. Okay. Do Do you look for any particular type of exit? going into your investments? Like, you know, I spoke to an investor last week who was really focused on investing in opportunities where he saw the potential to sell to a strategic buyer down the road. Um, he wasn't so interested, for example, in investing in a company that had the prospect of going public on its own. Um, so to, to tell me about the exit strategies that you know, you may favor or look for. Yeah, you know, even in healthy IPO markets, I think the exit ratio is, I think, 70 or 80 percent M&A. Mm -hmm. um, so generally, I feel like anybody should be looking at it with an eye towards M&A, uh, even if the company does end up going public. Um, we don't have a horizon. We're not in a rush to, to sell any business. We're um, we think because of the strategic, uh, you know, help that we're giving management teams, we'll probably drive exits a little sooner than typical because we want to start the conversations, mm -hmm. you know, on a kind of a long-term basis, and hopefully those matriculate into uh, exit opportunities. But um, but we definitely are are very focused on M&A exits. In fact, some of the businesses we've looked at. Um, that are large and, you know, names you've heard of and, and kind of big and on an IPO track. Um, oftentimes those valuations are, are so high that it's sort of an IPO or bust kind right. of, uh, mentality. And that's, that's not really, uh, a risk position we're comfortable with because we don't, we don't really have the resources to make macroeconomic bets on the health of the technology market in general and the IPO market. Um, Again, we're more sort of, our valuations are, are more oriented towards the, the business itself. Right, right. Um, 
you mentioned disruption a second ago, and I've been meaning to, to kind of uh, wedge that into the conversation. So as I told you before the podcast, I, I like to ask all of the guests how the current environment uh, of disruption is affecting their business. I mean, there's, I feel like we're living in an age of unprecedented disruption where, you know, if you look at the S&P, you know, the companies that have been on the S&P have been on for, you know, a shorter period uh, than ever, I believe, in history. Um, and, you know, you just look at software, for example, and, you know, what's innovative today may be, you know, obsolete in a few years. And, you know, I'm interested in your take as somebody who's investing in the software space, writing some big checks, you know, I'm assuming this environment is more advantageous than it is disadvantageous, but, but just, you know, give me your thoughts. Yeah. It's funny because when you only exist in the tech space, um, disruption is a funny word because it's, it defines the entire industry. Um, (laughs) It's, it's, you know, it's sort of like, it's kind of part and parcel to the existence of the tech business. So yeah. Um, you know, working a long time in M&A, um, all we did was kind of, you know, pursue valuations based on disruptive either functionality or value propositions that were new. And it's always exciting to me because, you know, these valuations, they, they look crazy from the outside sometimes. And, and keep in mind that the ones that make the press and are reported on and everybody brags about are, are the high end of the valuations, right? By definition mm-hmm. versus sort of all the transactions happening. But, um, but nevertheless, even when a, a valuation seems incredible, it, there's really a pretty, there's, a, there's usually a handful of smart people that have made a really educated bet uh, about how that business is going to grow. And you look at them, some in retrospect, and Instagram and YouTube are two examples that when you read yeah. about the valuations, they seem crazy. But I think yep. YouTube reported 13 billion in revenue last last quarter or last year. Sorry. So you no, know, I, it, I, always, I, I always use that Instagram example. Like I, I could not see it at the time it was acquired. I couldn't see the yeah. value there. And now it's it's like it was a, a pittance to pay for Facebook. You know. Yeah. Yeah, especially given kind of the audience and, you know, uh, metadata around the, the users that were, uh, that Facebook was kind of missing or growing out of. So it, it, it um, yeah. And, and so, you know, in general, I'd say the disruption is exciting. It's scary. It's volatile. Uh, but that's kind of the entire, the entire tech business. So it's, uh, it's really, uh, you know, what drives it. And, and the exciting part about it is, you know, these companies create real value. If you look at, um, if you go back to sort of virtualization and utility computing models where, you know, if you were eBay and you had to, you know, have a credit card server that was processing transactions and, you know, during Christmas it was a thousand times as busy. So you'd just buy, you know, a thousand times of servers and they would just sit around all year until Christmas, but you had to have them for then. And now with kind of virtualization and utility computing, you can shift compute loads two servers as you need them. And then you look at sort of public cloud and you can, you know, just buy the sort of utility or computing resources you need as you need them. I mean, that's an incredible value proposition for a business that's not involved in technology. Right. You know, and, and eBay sort of simple, um, simple example. That's not the actual sort of structures they run on, but 
but that's the that's kind of the value that some of this disruption is creating and that's exciting you know and it's real um and and that's why these businesses start to drive uh so much revenue right right well that's a a great answer um so you know as we wrap up here is there any kind of uh you know investment or or uh company that you're looking for or seeking out specifically right now are you are just kind of open to looking at all things within the parameters you mentioned um pretty much all things in the in the parameters mentioned uh, you know more is better um the, the only thing i probably can't be helpful on is really early stage uh like seed a round b round stuff um but um but anything in the parameters that, that i mentioned I'd, I'd love to talk about or listen whether it's uh you know our deal flow comes from other general partners at venture firms it comes from entrepreneurs it comes from lawyers we've worked with and we're always excited to uh to talk about uh opportunities and you know at least be as helpful as possible uh this is a long-term relationship business so um it's always good to be to be as helpful as you can and then uh, you know, uh, in a few years, hopefully that, that comes back to you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, great having you on the podcast today, Kevin, I think the listeners will gain a lot of valuable insight from, uh, your comments and, uh, hopefully we can reconnect in the not too distant future and, and see how the fun's going. Yeah. Great. Steve, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It was, uh, it was a pleasure to talk with you and, uh, hopefully helpful. And, uh, I look forward to, uh, to uh, staying connected. So, sounds great, Kevin. Have, have a great rest of the day. Thank you.